So we've got two readings from Matthew again today. Um, so the first one's Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 to 13, which I think is the Lord's Prayer again. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The second reading is from Matthew chapter 26, and it's verse 30 to 46. So 26, 30 to 46. I actually can't find it. There it is. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, This very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Thanks, Kirsten. Well, let's pray before we dig into this last one. Our Father in heaven, we thank you uh, that you have taught us to pray as Jesus prayed. Uh, you've taught us to pray in all situations uh, for our nourishment. Uh, for our forgiveness, for our relationship with others, and here finally, for our ever-present help in times of trial and temptation. Help us now, Lord, to learn uh, what you have promised us and help us to pray boldly and often uh, in this way. Amen. Uh, well, who has ever read The Pilgrim's Progress? A few people. 
a long time ago. Well, it's it was written a long time ago, uh, uh, before any of us were born, really. Uh, 1678, it came out. It was written by a guy called John Bunyan, who was an English guy, um, and it's an allegory. Uh, in case you don't know what an allegory is, it's a, a story with a hidden meaning, or often in this case, uh, a not-so-hidden meaning, since it's fairly obvious what it's getting on about. Uh, in The Pilgrim's Progress, it's a story of a young guy called Christian, hint. And <laughs> Christian uh, embarks, decides to embark on a long journey from his home, uh, subtly called the City of Destruction, uh, towards a far-off city called the Celestial City. Uh, and as, as he goes, he, he travels with a few uh, companions, and on in the first part of the journey, he, he comes uh, to a large hill, and the path that he's treading goes up this hill, and, and he finds that the hill is called Difficulty. Uh, we also learn in the story that the the way the path forks off in two other directions. One goes around one side of the hill, the other goes around the other way. And, and these ways also have names. Uh, they are called danger and destruction. Uh, now, Christians are two traveling companions. They look at the steep hill in front of them and they go, that doesn't look good. Uh, and then they see these other two ways. Well, they look much flatter and nicer and easier. And so they decided to go around the hill, one to the left, one to the right. Uh, and unfortunately, as far as the story goes, those two are never heard of again. Uh, Christian, however, looks at the hill and, and looks at how the path leads straight up it and attacks the hill immediately going up the, the steeper way. And as he does, he composes a little poem. He says, This hill, though high, I covet to ascend, the difficulty will not me offend, for I perceive the way to life lies here. Come, pluck up heart, let's neither faint nor fear. Better though difficult the right way to go, than wrong though easy where the end is woe. When John Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, his, his idea was to illustrate the Christian life. To, to put it in, in character and, and narrative so that we could better understand uh, what we can kind of expect from it. And his goal was to show that the Christian life, the journey, is, is not one full of ease and prosperity and, and everything going well. Instead, the road is often marked with difficulty. It's often the, face, uh, the, the case that we face the hill, the hill of difficulty, and we see that the road leads that way. Now, of course, it's not all doom and gloom. Even the Pilgrim's Progress, uh, there's plenty of joy and thanksgiving and, and satisfaction along the way. It's, it's certainly uh, not all just terrible, but what we often find is that that joy and that satisfaction, that thanksgiving, often happen in the midst of the difficulty, not apart from the difficulty. So... Then we should ask the question, then why should we continue at all? Why do the journey when it is so difficult, when it has so many hard things? Well, for the same reason that Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress um, persevered to get to the celestial city. Uh, for the same reason that an athlete trains day and night to get into the Olympics. Uh, the same reason a student studies through nights uh, for an exam. The same reason a musician spends hours in practice to hone their art. Because we believe that the struggle 
and the difficulty will ultimately be worthwhile. Is that right? We believe that the reward is going to be greater than the struggle is difficult. Right? We believe the reward is going to be greater and more wonderful than the journey is difficult. But that doesn't mean that we are then doomed to kind of struggle alone, to just kind of get through things the best we can. It doesn't mean that we can't ask and expect to receive help along the way. Well, today we finish our study on the Lord's Prayer. I hope you've enjoyed it. I certainly have. Uh, and in these uh, last few weeks, we've been looked at what, what do we pray for ourselves, right? And in, uh, first of all, Campbell showed us how we pray for our daily bread for God's provision. Uh, and then last week, uh, we looked at how we pray for the forgiveness of sins and uh, help to forgive others of their sins, you know? And that's really about good relationship, good relationship with God and good relationship with other people. And finally, we're told in this last sentence uh, to pray for the journey that we would be given all the help we need to reach the destination and to receive the prize of life forever. We are to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Okay, so uh, if you're here last week, we, we saw how there was um, a bit of a translation not difficulty, but uh, a thing we had to kind of decide about what translation we used. Uh, and uh, today is the same thing. We, we, you'll find that depending on your church background, uh, you will experience probably a different way to say this last line. Uh, some will be familiar with, lead us not into temptation. Very common. Uh, but those of you who have been with an Anglican church for a little while may instead be familiar with, save us from the time of trial save us from the time of trial uh same prayer two different versions uh which one do we go with well uh, the trouble is with the word temptation that we see in, in our bibles in the niv we see the word temptation uh the problem is with that the original word behind the word temptation the greek word has a few different meanings uh it can mean temptation just flat out like we understand that word uh, but it can also mean um, a test or a trial, something a bit different. Uh, and the words are uh, similar in English, right? But they're not quite the same. Uh, testing is, is a bit more of a positive spin on it uh, than temptation, which is a very negative word. Uh, and there's also another problem, and the problem is uh, with the word temptation, and that's that James uh, 1.13 says, uh, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Okay, so if, if God is never going to tempt us, because that's just not part of his nature, then why would we pray to him, lead us not into temptation? That doesn't quite make sense, does it? Well, I, I think we can pray it, and here's how. Uh, it is true that God never deliberately tempts us to sin. Not in his character. It's not what a father does. But what he does do sometimes is test us. He tests us. And that testing may sometimes include him allowing us to face temptation so that we have an opportunity to resist it. Okay? 
the best example is Jesus himself. If we look at Matthew chapter 4, it says that uh, um, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. God allowed Jesus to go into the desert uh, so that he would be in this place of famine and hardship and at the same time be tested by the devil to, uh, to do all sorts of things to uh, av- avoid doing the mission ahead of him. Tempted by uh, the, the treasures of the world and by power and by authority, all sorts of things. And so when Jesus' time was testing, the, the question for us is, well, would he succumb? Would he throw aside his mission? Would he remain faithful to his Father? And of course, we know that he doesn't. He remains faithful. He resists the devil at every turn. He does what his predecessors, uh, the prophets and Israel before him, were not able to do. Jesus remains faithful and true. So if Jesus can be tested by God, then we as his disciples can be expect to experience the same thing. But if we are to also remain faithful and true, like Jesus, then we are going to need help. So what's the best way to read this part of the Lord's Prayer? Uh, well, both are fine. You can, you can pray either. Uh, but I do like the way the Anglican Prayer Book puts it, to say, save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. Because I think the word trial tends to kind of have the word testing and temptation wrapped up in it. So when we pray for this, this, final, temp- this final petition, whichever way you decide to pray it, uh, we're really asking for three things. Uh, we're praying to be saved from trial. We're praying to be saved through trial. And we're praying to be saved out of trial. Okay? Saved from trial, saved through trial, and saved out of trial. Let's go through each of them. Uh, Saved from trial. Uh, To be honest, I am pretty stoked it's almost the end of the year. It's exciting to me to think of it being December and Christmas is soon upon us and then New Year's Day. Why? Because, uh, you know, I, I, I know that it's kind of completely arbitrary to think this, but for me, New Year's Day is a reset button. It's a new year. Now, it is just a day, like any other day. I could say it's tomorrow. That would work too. But for some reason, I say, New Year's Day, it works. It's, it ticks over. It's a new year. It's a new chance. It's a, it's a reset button. Uh, what I'm not saying is, man, this, this year has been pretty hard, but gosh darn it, really hoping next year will be worse. That would be great. That that would be my Christmas present. Yeah, next year is just going to be just going to be even worse. Uh, I don't say that. No, none of you, I think, say that either. Why? That's why. That's why. <laughs> um, uh, that's completely throwing me now. Where am I? All right. No, no one asks for next year to be to be worse. Why? Because no one really wants to go through trial, right? No one wants to go through temptation. No one hopes that it will happen. We're just not, we're just not wired that way. Um, and as a Christian, this should certainly not be the case for us, I don't think. We shouldn't want trial. We shouldn't want temptation. Why? Because you and I know how weak we are. We know how weak we are. And we know that given certain contexts, certain uh, temptations, certain opportunities, we may well stumble and fall. 
I know it. And I think you should know it as well. That's why I think the marshmallow test is so evil. You know the marshmallow test? You know, the university test I've done a little while ago where they got these four-year-olds and plopped them down on a chair and a table and put a marshmallow in front of them. And then they said to the child, um, if you don't eat the marshmallow, then in a little while I'll give you two marshmallows. And then we all laugh as this poor little kid goes into conniptions. Throughout, but I think uh, there he is. Goes into conniptions over this impossible choice. <laughs> do I eat it or do I not eat it? It's terrible. And put me in a room if I'm really hungry and a marshmallow in front of me. Give me the same choice. I'll have struggle as well. It's terrible and evil and should not be done to any ch child or adult. Uh, but the point is, of course, is that we should know our weaknesses. We know that given the right circumstances, uh, even with the promise of something better ahead, we may well stumble and fall. Lots of those kids to just eat the marshmallow. So it's right for us to pray in this way, Lord, save us from trial. Save us from temptation. It's actually praying into the space between God's sovereignty and our responsibility because God doesn't force us every step. He doesn't make us make choices. He gives us freedom to make choices. And so we pray that if there is a certain choice where, to be honest, I will just not make the right one, I pray, God, don't bring me to that choice. Don't bring me to that choice, lest it be too much for me. So we can pray this individually. Save us from trial, from temptation. We can also pray this for our society. Uh, I look at the trajectory of Australian culture and society and politics and I find it worrying. You know, we enjoy wonderful freedom as Christians. We can worship freely and publicly. We can talk to our neighbours about Jesus and we're not going to be afraid of reprisal or the police at our door. Uh, many Christians don't share that freedom. Uh, but there is a change of s in the tone of social discourse uh, in Australia. Once upon a time, Christians were just seen as ignorant idiots who just harmless but, but stupid, right? Uh, but now increasingly Christians are seen as actually evil and immoral because of the choices that we make. So it doesn't take a prophet to see that the future could be very difficult for the church in Australia. It could mean trials for us far greater than we have seen in the West for a long, long, long time. Now, in a way, that's okay. Right? The church has, has not only survived but thrived in, in persecution and trouble many times in history. But uh, that doesn't mean that we should wish it, that we want it to happen. So... I pray, and we should all pray that it doesn't, that, that Australia can remain a place where we where Christians can live, work, and worship in freedom and without fear. So we pray uh, as individuals, as churches, as a church in all Australia, God, in your mercy, do not allow us to be led into the time of trial. There's another reason we can pray like this before we move on. Uh, Jesus prayed it himself. We saw it in the reading before. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as he is preparing to face the cross, as to go to death, to, to, as the Savior of the world, the mission that he knows he's on, he still, in the Garden of Gethsemane, gets down on his knees and prays to his Father, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. What he's asking, he's, he's asking to be spared having to do what he's about to do. 
dying on the cross, taking on himself the sin of the whole world. So if Jesus can boldly ask the Father to spare him that horrible trial, then surely we can ask the Father to spare us ours as well. And he may well do it. He may well answer. But like Jesus, we will also pray, as he went on to pray in the garden, this caveat, yet not as I will, but as you will. We pray, Father, we know our weakness, so please spare us having to face trials where we may stumble and fall. But if it is your will that we face them, give us the resilience to face them and succeed. Do not just save us from trial, but save us through trial. Save us through trials. My second point. Um, okay, at this point, we need to look a little bit more at uh, what we mean by temptation. Um, I think we, we kind of understand what it means, right? It means to desire something that we know we shouldn't have or to desire to do something that we know that we shouldn't do. That's temptation. I always think of uh, The Simpsons with the little, little Homer angel and the little Homer devil on either shoulder. It's, it's that kind of thing, right? It's temptation. Um, this happens in all sorts of ways. Uh, we might be tempted uh, to look at someone lustfully who's not our spouse, or we might be tempted to steal or lie or cheat for financial gain. Uh, we might be tempted to speak badly of someone in order to promote ourselves in, in our company or in place of work. Uh, we might be tempted to get drunk with, with our workmates when uh, no one else is around. Uh, we might be tempted to badmouth our bosses um, when, when all our peers are doing the same thing. Uh, many, many others, and these are all uh, perfectly true. You know, but we can also be tempted to sin in ways much deeper than just in action. Okay? I think when we talk speaking of temptations, we often think about tempted to do something or get something. Um, but temptation works at a much deeper level than that. What we can be tempted to do most deeply is to allow something in our lives to take God's place as our greatest treasure. That is temptation at the deepest level. To allow relationships or work or hobbies or money or possessions or affiliations or any number of other things to, to take God's place as the central and most important thing in our lives. Uh, to, to set up false gods for ourselves. Uh, and this is called idolatry. This is what the Bible calls idolatry. Our greatest temptation below the actions is to participate in idolatry. Um, and actually, when we look at the, the list of actions I just talked about, uh, every single one of them ha is, is underpinned by idolatry in some way. Uh, the temptation to lust flows out of a worship of relationships and of pleasure. The temptation to steal or lie or cheat comes out of the worship of money. Uh, the temptation to slander a colleague comes out of the worship of career. The temptation to go along with the crowd in bad behavior comes from the worship of popularity. Uh, and so on and so forth, you name it. Uh, so when we pray, lead us not into temptation, we actually pray, Lord, may we be so aware of where our hearts are at any time that we will tear down the idols that we build up as, as quickly as we build them up that we may not even build them up in the first place. And, and family, this is not really an if this will happen, but a when this will happen. As long as we live in this world that's marred by sin, we will constantly battle 
temptations of all sorts. Now, of course, there's good news to all this. Um, and the good news is that, well, the first good news is that when we do uh, are tempted and we do succumb, we are forgiven. We talked about that last week. We are forgiven, washed clean. Uh, the second good thing is that actually when we go through temptations and trials and sufferings, it's actually good for us. Do you know that? Um, someone was telling me recently that the Christian life is a bit like a gem tumbler. I can't for the life of me who, who remember who it was. Was it someone here? No? Good. Uh, my idea then. Uh, the Christian life is like a gem tumbler. You know this? This is a gem tumbler. Um, well, I didn't know we can have video behind things. That's really cool. There we go. Um, Nino's just playing around with the settings there. Uh, the, um, that's a gem tumbler. What does a gem tumbler do? Well, basically, um, it's a small barrel. It mechanically spins really fast. And inside it, you put rough cut gemstones uh, along with some sand and grit. Right. Um, and what happens when you turn it on, let it go for a while, is this. Got the next slide. Next one. There we go. That's what happens. Uh, what goes in is uh, rough cut rock, um, and what comes out is a, a beautiful gemstone. It uh, smooths out the bumps, it refines it, it makes it into something really glorious. Uh, how is this like the Christian life? Well, what this means is that all the trials and testings and sufferings that we face actually have a purpose. It's like the grit and the sand that's in a gem tumbler. Uh, the purpose is to refine us, to smooth out the bumps, to, to make us shine. And the more we resist temptation, the better we are able to love and enjoy God himself, and the more our lives will reflect that. We will be refined. So this means that as much as it is, it is right to pray that we should be spared trials, we must at the same time pray that we might face trials and that they would refine us, sanctify us, and change us. How exactly does that happen? Well, uh, when we go through trials, what it does is it builds our character. Not just morally or just kind of make you a better human being. It helps your character to be more aligned to the character of God. So we learn humility. We become resolved not to lash out or blame, but to quietly persevere. We learn dependence on God. We, we come to our wit's end and we find that we can't rely on our own talents and resources anymore. We have to rely on the strength and power of God. Uh, we learn resilience. To, uh, we learn to allow trials to throw us into chaos, but to calmly deal with them. To not allow them to, to break us or throw us into turmoil, but just to calmly face the trial and move through it. Uh, we learn what it means to suffer like Christ. Because Christ suffered unjustly. He was abused and mistreated, but he didn't act back in vengeance. And so we can now suffer with the same kind of grace as he did. And we, uh, we learn to uh, give grace as well. Because we have a keen sense of the sort of trials that other people are going through. So we're not always just inward looking. Uh, Tim Keller points out that the best people often have the most terrible lives. You know this? Uh, I think in the Bible, think of Job, uh, think of Paul, think of Abraham, think of, think of Jesus. They're terrible lives, shocking. Not very, just not good at all. And yet they're the greatest people. 
And in recent history, you could think of Nelson Mandela or Mother Teresa or Dietrich Bonhoeffer, people who had awful, awful lives and yet are upheld even by secular society as being the very best of humanity. And why? why? Why are they upheld like that? Well, because their faith in God made it possible for their great trials to refine their characters to the point where even the most ardent atheist has to give some respect. So we pray for resilience to get through the trials and temptations that we face. Uh, we don't expect that it will just happen automatically. It won't. But we do expect that if we allow the experience to plummet us into the grace of God deeper and deeper, then we will come out through the, uh, the other side transformed, that we will be shining. We will be transformed and we will be matured. And finally, uh, so we will be saved uh, from trial, saved through trial. Now finally, we also pray that we will be saved out of trial. Uh, let's look at the second part of the verse. It says, of course, lead us not into temptation or save us from the time of trial, but deliver us from evil. Uh, there's a double meaning here. The evil could mean evil in general, just the, the evilness, wickedness of the world. Or it could also mean the evil one, meaning the devil, meaning Satan, the, the enemy of the church, the accuser of Christians. Uh, there will come times in Christian life when trial becomes so heavy when it is like a massive burden on top of our shoulders, when the storm seems to rage all around and we feel like we are close to sinking or perhaps even already drowning. This kind of trial happens for all sorts of reasons. could be because of hunger or disease or financial ruin or persecution, instability, unemployment, relationship breakdown, death of a loved one, could be because of mental illness causing great unrest through depression or anxiety, all sorts of other things. Could be a result of simply feeling out of place in the world, of being lonely, of being unsupported, of being chaotic. And in times like this, the Father invites us to come to Him and ask Him to save us. To act like he did with Peter and Silas. Remember, when they were in prison, they prayed and an angel walked in and the chains fell off and they walked out of prison without a scratch. Uh, we can also pray that God would save us out of trial, that we might simply walk out of strife miraculously, that we would be without a scratch. But of course, will he necessarily answer? Will he bring us out straight away? Well, well, no, not necessarily. It may be that he will wait longer than we are comfortable with so that he can teach us something about him. Um, will he bring us out at all? Actually, no, not necessarily. Uh, history shows that Christians often sometimes are not brought out of trial before they die. It might be that he, God's plan is for us to sit in it right to the end. But we should still pray it because in his grace and his mercy, he may well save us out of trial. Paul himself writes in 2 Timothy, You, however, know all about my teachings, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, and persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. The persecutions I endured. 
yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. God is a God who does love to rescue. Uh, But if you read the Bible carefully, then uh, one thing is very obvious. Uh, There are references to rescue. There are references to people being saved miraculously out of great trial. But what is much, much more frequent, what is in fact scattered throughout the whole Bible is a different kind of rescue. And this is a kind of rescue that we can be absolutely sure of and we pray for it, we will receive, have received. Galatians 1.4, we are rescued from this present evil age. Colossians 1.13, we are rescued from the dominion of darkness. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, we are rescued from the coming wrath. When we pray, deliver us from evil, we do pray for help in what we are currently facing, but we also pray it without anxiety of it not being immediately answered. Why? Because we know that the prayer has already been answered. Because Jesus did take the cup of wrath, because he did go to the cross for us, because he did allow God's will to prevail, because we know that ultimately we have been assured eventual rescue from all evil or sin or suffering or tears because of what he has done. Family, this life will not be easy. It will be very much like the hill called difficulty. Uh, uh, We will face every source of trial, every test, every temptation, Uh, But the thing is that we will face them with a courage that the world will not understand. How? Well, because we've read our Bibles. And we know that Jesus was led into temptation in the wilderness with the devil himself and in the garden before the cross. Uh, But Jesus in every way resisted temptation and persevered through it. And so, so shall we because we have his power in us. And even though he went through the greatest of trials, entering into death itself for three days, Jesus was saved through his resurrection. And so in his power, so will we. We'll be saved even through death. Trial and temptation may hit us hard. It may even seem to bury us. But our future is with our risen Lord. And we will make it through to the end of the journey. And so when trial does come, when temptation does come, We will face it, and we'll face it together as a community. We will constantly remind each other of what is true. We will help each other. We will love each other. We will comfort. We will protect. And we'll do it all without fear because we know what is ahead. We will reach the celestial city. We will gain the prize. And family, you can be absolutely sure of the fact that it will be worth it. It will be worth every single second. So one last time now in this series, we'll pray together the prayer that Jesus, our Lord, taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen.